Tuesday, October 11th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hillen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hansen. Guys, good to see you. What up? Good to see hey. you, Chris. We've got Occupy Wall Street, we've got IBM, General Mills, but we are going to begin overseas. Yesterday, China's Sovereign Wealth Fund announced it would begin buying shares of China's four largest state banks. Uh, Tim Hansen, um, does China's government think that the banks are undervalued, or is this uh, a confidence-boosting move? Well, well, yesterday I just thought this was idiocy because, <laughs> as we've talked, so there's about, a third option. Well, yeah, as we've talked about in the past, China's banks have, have lent way too much money, likely to people who aren't going to be able to pay it back, and there's got to be some sort of um, solution that that comes in terms of a, a bailout, whether it's implicit or explicit, to, to fix this. So anybody throwing money at these banks, investing that money in these banks, is probably going to end up with a, with a bad return. Now, that's nothing new for sovereign wealth funds. They're historically very bad investors. So on the, on the face of this, it just looked like another dumb move by a sovereign wealth fund with some sort of political angle attached to it. You know, the sovereign wealth fund of the banks, both run by the government, so everybody's happy. Then I read a very interesting column by my friend and uh, economist living in uh, China, Patrick Jovanek, and he basically said that that maybe this is actually smarter than it looks by the by the Chinese sovereign wealth fund because he postulated that they are buying shares of their banks because the banks are overvalued. Now I'll let that sink in for a second because normally when insiders buy, yeah. it's a good opportunity. Warren Buffett, you know, buying back shares of Berkshire Hathaway, exactly. thinks it's cheap. Um, here. What he's thinking is that, look, the banks in China are going to need a lot of money to recapitalize. And who better to get that money from than dumb foreigners? <laughs> so by buying shares of the banks with their sovereign wealth fund, they prop up the current valuation of the bank, which is overvalued, in the hopes that that valuation stays propped up long enough that uh, they can then sell additional shares to dumb foreigners, take in the capital they need to recapitalize, and everything has worked out perfectly on the backs of dumb foreigners, which is just crazy enough that it might work. Who are the dumb <laughs> yeah, who foreigners? Who is heavily predicated on this dumb foreigner here. thesis? Really? I mean, what? Yeah. A, really, we're asking who are the dumb foreigners? Well, what what dumb bank has loose pocket change to go buy a? Stake I'm not sure a it's necessarily one. a dumb bank. I mean, there's plenty of money sitting around in private equity. Uh, you know, you've got other sovereign wealth funds who could step up. I mean, Qatar sovereign wealth fund just in- invested in Greek banks. But this is like pretending <laughs> they've got plenty of money as long as oil stays high. I mean, there are a lot of ways that this works out. This is like, I don't know, pretending to love some plaid blazer you're selling at a yard sale just so someone will buy it. You know, and I just don't think people are going to take the bait. You have a lot of faith in investors after some of the things that, that have happened in the world of institutional uh, money management over the past couple past couple of years. So when do you think we're going to know? At what point uh, is, is it three months, six months down the line? At what point? Are you going to be able to come back to us in this room and say, "Hey, you know what? The d- the dumb uh, the inve- laser was sold. The China- dumb foreign <laughs> investor uh, play worked out." So China next year is basically restaffing all of their um, uh, municipal, provincial, and then national level leadership, and so all these bank recapitalizations that need to happen, which the government has said they want to happen, basically have to take place before, let's say, mid twenty twelve. Um, so the goal, you know, you're going to see a lot of these banks filing for secondaries and follow-ons, and the question is, will and they'll be at the current price because mm-hmm. that's what you file at, and who subscribes to, to 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 give them that money? And I would guess you're you're going to see Adia, which is the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. You're going to see the Qatari Investment Authority show up. You might see Russia show up with some money. Um, Temasek, which is in Singapore and has been crawling all over itself to get into China, might show up. And then, frankly, you just got. 
I mean, you've got a lot of private equity cash sitting in China where, you know, when you need to put it to work, you might you might as well put it to work with the government in the hopes that everything works out across your fingers. So you're calling all those nations dumb? Is what you're I'm calling their sovereign wealth funds dumb, absolutely, and they have the returns to back it up. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what, if, what about the good old U.S. of A.? Don't we? I mean, we, I mean we've got some dumb investors. Don't we do. We? On the bright side, we have a lot of dumb investors, but on the bright side, we're running out of money. So, <laughs> fabulous. Uh, Occupy Wall Street has spread to more than two dozen cities, and it now has its first corporate sponsor. The board of directors of Ben & Jerry's issued a statement saying the company is honored to join the move for systemic change. Uh, James, um, uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that the first corporate supporter to step up to the plate is Ben & Jerry's, which is you know a company that's uh, known for sort of backing social issues. It's ironic, though, as Tim and I were talking before the show, this is a company that, in a business sense, can't get out of its own way. It was not that successful. It had a very cute product, but it succeeded in spite of that, not because, well, succeeded in spite of itself. And just because of that cute product, it was bought by Unilever. Cute and delicious, a, by the way. Talk about a huge, <laughs> thank you, um, a huge multinational in, in 2000. So it just wanted to remain free to, to opine about these sorts of things, and it's done that. But I, I think we're not surprised that this is the kind of company that's going to endorse this. Tim? Yeah, it's, one, it's just quirky. I mean, like I said, it's, it's owned by Unilever, which is a giant multinational corporation. I mean, you know, in, 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 a, in a way where they're trying to pit the 99% against the 1%, the people who run Unilever probably in the 1%, arguably. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, this is this is something that if this movement is going to succeed and accomplish tangible things, they need to avoid stuff like this because this is basically Ben and Jerry's, a subsidiary of a multinational, trying to advertise and market themselves and and build their brand in such a way where they align with social causes. Is there a reality there? Is there a real foundation? I, I'm skeptical. And so, you know, if the if the movement wants to remain um, relevant and novel and interesting, I think they need to say, look, we're, we're we don't want corporate sponsorship. The whole stupid point of this is that you know corporations are too involved mm-hmm. in the day-to-day workings of our society. I was just going to say, every company should jump on the bandwagon and sponsor the, the, the protest. It would just piss them off so much. Yeah. yeah. What I, what I was going to say, we were talking beforehand, Like, what, what's at the other end of the spectrum? Is it like Goldman Sachs? If Goldman Sachs comes out and backs the Occupy Wall Street movement, is that like what's the most surprising corporate backer here? In a weird way, I wouldn't be surprised to see a Wall Street firm come out and express some kind of sympathy as the first mover to kind of kind of get people on their on their side. Joe? Joe, you're going you're up quite to, over Joe, there, Joe. Joe is going up to New York yeah, he is going up. for an investing conference, uh, for actually a Motley Fool conference as well. Um, but you, you said you're going to go check out the movement, right? Yeah, I'm going to check it out. I don't know what to expect. I go back and forth between thinking these people are just naive and that there might actually be something of substance. So I'm really curious. I've, I've got a pretty open mind, I think, to go up and see what it's about and just get a feel for it all. It, what if one of the people in the Occupy Wall Street movement says to you, look, um, you, Motley Fool, you guys know a thing or two about uh, at least trying to affect change in the financial world. Give me one piece of advice. What, what's, what's one thing that they should advocate for uh, in terms of systemic change? Well, I don't know that they know what they want. And I would almost say that they should wait a little while to figure that out. Like, they should just stick to this gooey mass glob of people who are passionate about something. You don't sound very open-minded to me. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I think they need a position that, that would have some appeal to – I mean, they, they say they're the 99%, but let's be honest. It's not 90, 90% of the country out there protesting. So they need some position that will be very appealing to 
a mainstream audience um, and that, you know, eventually a major political party or something like that could back. Frankly, I think it would be something like term limits, which, you know, if your problem is that there are too many entrenched corporate and other interests um, in government and too many entrenched, you know, not government interests in corporations, but all this sort of, you know, footsie that the two sides play between each other, you know, I, I still think the, the best way to get after that is term limits. That way no one can become too buddy-buddy with anybody over a long period of career as so many um, politicians have. Well, ironically, these guys kind of cross the party aisle in a sense and that, you know, they're against this, you know, one percenters taking advantage of them or whatever. But in terms of Wall Street bailouts, a lot of the people who are deeply against that were people who are one percenters who are deeply, deeply opposed to bailing out these Wall Street banks that screwed up. James? I don't know if, if they were to solidify and make more specific their demands, like let's have a run on banks, let's do this, let's do that. They're going to start to alienate some of the, the, the people who actually contribute to this movement in the first place. Yesterday, IBM stock hit an all-time high since 1993. Shares of IBM have an annualized return of 18%. Joe, I was stunned when I read this because the only time I ever even think about IBM is if we're talking about you know something like Watson, the Jeopardy playing supercomputer. Um, does this surprise you at all? Well, it's funny because around the office and in the industry, anytime you talk about being like a closet index fund investor, there's this expression, I'll just buy IBM. And ironically, it's trounced the market over that time horizon. It's been pretty impressive. Uh, I think really that success kind of speaks to the value or the unheralded value of strong companies and their ability to quietly outperform over long periods of time and reinvest capital at high rates of return. It's a totally boring concept, but the funny thing is, if you look at IBM over that time horizon, probably no one was like, IBM is a screaming buy right now, and yet it just quietly kept executing and delivering great returns. Um, IBM was seen as Big Brother in that classic Apple uh, commercial uh, in 1984. Um, IBM was the dominant computer company. Um, since that time, Apple obviously has become the, the very cool, hip, sleek uh, computer and uh, and sort of uh, electronic products company. Um, what do you think? And certainly, the stock has had its own run as well. Over the next five to ten years, let's match these two up. You've got one very cool company in Apple. You've got one sort of behind the scenes. Do you even know what IBM does anymore? Uh, they're like a business to business company basically now. I mean, there's you know there are no <laughs> cool IBM what stores. What does that mean? A business to business company? They B to B. B to B. They sell computers to businesses. We've got IBM products here. They have they have server farms that they have, don't they? No, I don't know. I think they're doing mostly consulting at this point, aren't they? There you go, Joe. So you've, business, got, yeah. you've got one very jeopardy. One very. <laughs> <laughs> They've got one very hip, you know, consumer-facing company. You've got the other in IBM, which is is not. What do you like over the next five years, IBM or Apple as a stock? I'd go with IBM. I think the revenue and the earnings are a lot stickier, and I think they'll be able to keep benefiting from that and be able to take the relationships they've got and keep leveraging them and gouging people with their patent portfolio. I was going to say, and the trolls, James. I- IBM on a risk-adjusted basis. Apple may outperform, but IBM will Oh, <laughs> don't go that's weak a good, meat that's on a good us. Answer, good answer. Well, another thing that's interesting about this is these are two companies that have dramatically changed their business models from the time where that commercial aired, right? I mean, IBM is not a PC machine anymore. It's very far from it. And it's another example of where you can have more than one winner in an industry that's swinging upwards. Um, you know, people like to pit companies against one another. So, like, today that comparison is Google and Apple. But both companies can easily win by riding along kind of the same big-picture trends. 
And finally, guys, General Mills has been working to lower the sugar content in its cereals over the past few years, uh, but it appears to have hit a stopping point. Uh, General Mills has referred to the so-called sweetness threshold, which appears to be 10 grams of sugar per serving. If they go lower than that, turns out kids actually don't like the cereal much, uh, and the cereal sinks faster. Uh, James, I know General Mills is a company that you follow closely. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the sweetness <laughs> threshold exists only because these companies have habituated everyone to eat massive quantities of, of, of sugar. By General Mills standards, my entire diet is inedible, probably. Uh, I, I, I don't eat very much sugar at all. And really, who cares if it floats? Because, I mean, I'm going to poison my kid with, with, with excess sugar just to have his cereal float? I mean, it's just makes me obviously a little upset. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. But, but this is, I think it's just silly. I think we need collusion here on behalf of these cereal makers. They need to get together, they need to say, we're going to cut the sugar all, all at once and have some negative ad campaign, like if you love your kid, you won't give him sugar. Bad parents do that. Good parents don't, or something like that, to, to, to really rub it in. And, and you know maybe that's how we, we move forward. Well, you, you obviously have not discovered the joys of digging into a big bowl of Lucky Charms. <laughs> You know, I've, I don't even had. I used to eat Fruit Loops when I was a little kid, but I never really? really had Lucky Charms. Yeah, I did. I did. And I'm I amazed you've ever, ever had sugared cereal in your life. I thought you were always like the this. Past ten years, I've been like this, but but not before that. Tim, you you're a relatively new parent. Um, uh, where, where do you stand on giving sugar to your boy? I guess I don't I don't have a an active position on that topic yet. But I would like to go back to the bad parents give their kids <laughs> which sugar part of the is diet a proposed track? advertisement slogan. <laughs> Because I've seen parents give their kids sugar. I mean, all things in moderation. Were bad parents? All things in moderation. Are you calling my mom a bad parent? I was going to say, Joe, the, the Mager family is... He's, uh, he's definitely calling... Up on we sugar. are high on sugar. <laughs> he's definitely calling me a bad parent. Um, Joe, we were talking this morning about sort of this this threshold that, that companies like General Mills have to deal with. You were mentioning Campbell's sort of in the same vein um, uh, dealing with sodium content, right? Yeah, they've been desalting their soups uh, for a lot of reasons. Mainly, they want to get people off their backs about how unhealthy they are, but they also want to be able to advertise that it's so much healthier, and they've been progressively, quietly cutting back on the amount of sodium. The problem is, just like the you know sweet, waxy, sugary glaze on cereal, uh, when that goes away, the cereal sinks. You have similar problems with uh, with soup, where when you cut the amount of sodium involved, the shelf life falls. So there are real you know performance issues with these foods involved with taking out the awesome but terrible ingredients. I think there's an opportunity for a cereal company here to step up and just go the in the, the other direction way, yeah. and just say we have no yes, performance issues. Our have- our cereal is you know, like sugar coated and double dipped in chocolate. Like that's what we're making. That's what we're selling. I think I think there's a market there, Tim. As Count as there's, there's a market for everything, Chris. It's just a matter of how big and whether you can find it. All right. We want our listeners to weigh in on this. Drop us an email, radio at fool.com. Give us your thoughts on the whole sugar issue. And by all means, um, share your biggest indulgence when it comes to sugar. And tell us how bad a parent you are. <laughs> Let it all air out. taken out of context. <laughs> exactly. We won't read your names on the air. We're going to give you anonymity on this one. We'll just go with like initials or something like that. We'll give you total and then to- totally anonymous. 
We'll protect you. Drop us an email. That's radio at fool.com. Tim Hansen, James Early, Joe Mager. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.